It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson's here. He'll analyze Microsoft's monthly update. We'll take a look at the end of life of Windows XP. We're counting down and answer 10 of your questions. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 399, recorded April 10th, 2013. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 165. Security Now is brought to you by Man Packs, manly goods on a schedule. Get started today and have underwear, socks, toiletries, shaving supplies, and more delivered to your door. Visit manpacks.com slash twit and get $10 off your first order of $30 or more or buy a $50 gift card for $40. It's time for security now. There he is, the man with the plan and a big mug of coffee. That's bigger. I don't understand. Yours yours seems so much bigger than my contigo. Steve Gibson is here. He's the explainer-in-chief for our security guru, the man who keeps on, on top of all the security issues and flaws and tells us about it and teaches us about computing, crypto, even uh, obscure uh, things like Bitcoin. You know, people ask me, hello, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again, as always. People ask me a lot, because there's been a lot of Bitcoin news over the last month, why don't we talk more about Bitcoin? And, and I say, well, we do. You're just listening to the wrong show, because uh, Steve is an expert. And I, I want to thank you, because you encouraged us to open Bitcoin donations on the website, and uh, we do. It's not up yet, but uh, any day now. <clears throat> I'm have to go engineer, uh, engineer somebody. We have a Bitcoin section in today's Q and A podcast. Oh, yeah, we because got there's so much Bitcoin news. Cool, yeah, cool. So we're at episode three ninety nine, one wow. shy of the big four zero zero. Wow. So that's neat. Um, uh, I'm going to be doing a little KTLA TV interview. Thanks to Tom who referred them to me. Uh, actually, on after the day after next. Uh, week's podcast. So they want to talk about passwords. Oh, so Perfect guy. Be, You're the guy. That'll, that'll be fun. I had meant to thank Tom. I'll do so. Yeah. Um, so here we are again. This is a Q&A episode. We've got uh, a bunch of questions. Some there were quickie, so I put in 12. But, you know, if we if we run we long, we'll time. just Come stop on. when we run out. Take, uh, take but time. we do have news. Uh, the standard, almost constant start of every Security Now podcast, of course, is what has been patched and updated. This is we're the Wednesday after the second Tuesday of the month. So we're always talking on this Wednesday relative to that Tuesday about Microsoft. Um, we have nine sets, of nine bundles of patches, which remove 13 vulnerabilities. Uh, it's not a big exciting one, nothing, you know, devastating. Uh, only two were rated critical. Interestingly, one of them fixes two critical vulnerabilities which have existed since the dawn of Internet Explorer, never found before until now. 
they're, th- this is a roll-up that goes back as far as IE6 because they figure nobody is running IE5. I mean, I don't even think you can run IE5 anymore. It, it takes you to, a, when you launch it, it takes you to a page that Microsoft hasn't had for the last decade. Um, so it can't even get going. Um, so everyone wants to uh, keep their Windows machine up to date, uh, should do this. There's also a fix in um, the remote desktop protocol. If it were a critical vulnerability in the server, that would be a cause for great concern because that could be really important. This is over on the desktop client, however, so not such a big problem. But still, you know, want to keep your machines patched, uh, which uh, all machines other than XP you'll be able to do for the foreseeable future. Uh, XP, it turns out, had a pre-anniversary on Monday, two days ago. We are on, as of April 8th, 2013, two days ago, there were exactly 365, well, depending on where we are with Leap Year, I'm not sure, uh, Maybe there's a quarter in there or not, or an extra one. But uh, April 8th, 2014 is the official end of Windows XP Service Pack 3 support. So we we XP users have one year left to move, and I'll be moving to, to Windows 7. I'll be ha- quite happy with Windows 7. It's really perfect, too, because I get to avoid the horrors on either side. So <laughs> You mean Vista uh-huh. and Windows 8? <laughs> uh-huh. You know, 7, I, I've, I've said for some time, a couple of years now, is the best version of Windows, I think. And I know you don't want to go to it right away because you want to make sure it gets a chance to patch and, and become solid. And I think it's been out, what, for five years now? Well, how long has it been out? No, I'm just time. not in a hurry. I'm, you know, I have it running all, all, all around me. I've got Windows 7. I mean, Skype is running on a Windows 7 box right, right now right. when I'm talking to you. Um, I've got one set up to sort of echo the servers at GRC because my – and I did this sort of as a, as a get-to-know-Windows 7, make sure I can do the things I need to on it. Um, I am a little concerned. You remember Brett Glass, I'm sure, from yeah, the old days. Yeah. Brett was a columnist in InfoWorld yeah. and is a, you know, a, a, also a deep techie. He said the same thing that Mark Thompson said of Windows 7, which makes me uncomfortable, which is how am I going to run my 16-bit code, which is still perfectly workable. I mean, like I'm running Brief, which Isn't is 16-bit. is a compatibility bit. mode of some kind? Well, you know, there is, you can write, you, you can look at the properties of an XE and there is a XP, Windows XP compatibility mode. There's also some sort of a virtual machine thing, but I don't know if just turning that on allows it to run 16-bit code. If it if it does, then I'm, <laughs> then my only real concern is resolved, but I've got a year to figure that out. Yeah, I don't know, actually, because it would need, it, it, it wouldn't be just tricking it into saying it's XP, it would actually have to have a... A 16-bit a DLL. I think or it has. Right? I think it has. No, I mean, there's a yes. There's a there's a bunch of 16-bit compatibility which has always been in Windows, which they explicitly removed right. from Windows 7, and they said right. we've removed this. But there was something you can do. But it may be. It may require like running a virtual machine. In I mean, going well, through all that. You can do that if you have Windows Seven Pro. You can they it inc- they throw in just for people like you a Windows XP and a VM. Uh, and somebody in the chat room said that 32-bit version of Windows Seven will run 16-bit, but not the 64-bit of Windows Seven. That makes sense. That's what they use the 64-bit for, right? Was to say, okay, get ready, here it comes. 
Yeah. yeah. And, of course, that's the one you want because who, right. who really wants that three-gig you know, wor- working yeah. RAM limit anymore? Uh, that's, you know, it's a reason. And because, I mean, eight gigs is so cheap these days, and then right. you don't have to worry about it. So, anyway, uh, also in updating news, we have another Flash player, IE and Chrome will both update for you. Firefox is generally doing a good job about telling you when you got an out-of-date version and will warn you. So, you know, what I'm... And I was thinking about this relative to Java. We were talking about Java. Oh, and I should mention Java will be updated again next Tuesday. So uh, that'll be on the, on Tuesday the 16th of next week. Oracle will be rolling out their next fix for Oracle or for Java, which is nice because it means it's not an emergency. They're saying, okay, we're, we got some things to fix, but you don't have to hyperventilate. Probably, um, probably it, not. <laughs> it really does seem to me that that what we're going to be seeing as a as a clear necessity while we've got these vulnerable plugins that continue to be problematic is since it, you know if they're not being proactive about taking responsibility for themselves the hosts of the plugins meaning the browsers are going to have to take proactive uh care of their users right. which means you know either updating automatically which is the probably the best solution That's what or Chrome at least does. Warn, at least warning yeah, yes exactly. and and i ie10 now does, does too. too you know i also think that uh, am i wrong but i gather that the of course, bad guys are looking for third-party apps now because Windows is pretty well-patched and, and uh, people are running software to protect themselves and so forth. So they look for holes in third-party software. But for the most part, it needs to, it's, it's browser plugins that are the real issue. So, Yes, we've seen a change. We, we, we really have, for a while, PDFs, remember, were just being yeah. attacked with abandon. That just, it was really bad. Um, but- because you could get a browser to auto-launch a PDF. And if you had an Adobe and Reader installed, your email client, your right. email client too. Right. So right. send, you know, sending people phishing mail. But Adobe, to their credit, they did implement sandboxing technology, okay. which has gone a long way. I mean, it took them forever, which is, you know, we can hold their feet to the fire because it took them so long. Well, it took but Microsoft did... a long time to get Windows locked down too. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. A, it may just be this is kind of a hard thing to do without breaking stuff, right? It is definitely. It, security. I mean, the, the 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 subtitle of this podcast is "Security is Hard." Yeah, a, yeah. and you know, and and only fun for we observers, <laughs> not not for those who have to worry about right. mistakes they may have made. Right. So, right. yeah, but but yes, there's so we're we're seeing a migration. Um, we'll we'll be talking about some late some Skype malware, which has now oh, become yeah. another. Another target, uh, another vector through which this stuff can get in. And of so, course, Microsoft wants you to keep Skype running all the time in the background. Well, that's yeah, the plan. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Why, wouldn't why wouldn't you? you? So, um, Comcast also has a page. We talked last week about Cox having a page where they list all the ports they're blocking. Um, I'm still working on on advances to the fingerprinting, the SSL, TLS, HTTPS fingerprinting technology, which is being a bit, has been a big hit over at GRC. So I haven't yet been able to look at updating Shields up. Um, but what I want to do, uh, remember what, what's happened is it's been confusing some people because we're detecting when some, we're, some, some ISPs send back notification of their 
of their own preemptive blocking of traffic prior to it getting to the user. So what I want to do is to have to add to the open, closed, and stealth status, add a fourth kind of port, which would be intercepted. I think oh. that's the perfect And word. you'd be able to sense that. Yeah, well, we, that's the problem is not all ISPs do echo something, but some do. So for those who do, now that I know they're doing it, I really can't say you're stealth. I mean, you may be, but your ISP is not, even though it's not really you. Anyway, it's confusing. But I'm going to – yes, there'll be, uh, there'll be a fourth port state, which would just provide more information to the user. And that's the whole, the whole goal anyway. So, cool. so Comcast – is not blocking port 1900, the which we wish they were, the universal plug-and-play port. Um, they're, they're, they're blocking the standard suspects, 25, of course, which is SMTP for keeping spam relays and, and spammers. They're blocking uh, UDP port 68, which is DHCP, and that makes sense. You wouldn't you, – you could just get up to mischief with that. There's no reason for that to, to cross the border. They are, of course, blocking Microsoft's famous NetBIOS ports, 135 through 139. Uh, they're also blocking SNMP, which I thought was interesting. That's the simple uh, network management protocol, which can be used for configuring equipment, but mostly it's used for monitoring. All kinds of routers and equipment publish their own, they're like counters so that you can query, you know, bytes in, bytes out, byte rates, and, and so forth. You can actually pretty much probe the configuration of a router through SNMP if it is not secured. And, of course, it's typically not, unfortunately. So they're blocking that. And port 445, which is the other the um, Microsoft, the SMB uh, protocol through which is which file and printer sharing. Uh, then also RIP, which I thought was interesting. That's the routing uh, information protocol, which routers use for exchanging their routing and, and, and updating their routing tables with each other. So that makes sense. Again, you'd, you'd, there's, I mean, I'm sure they have a way of, of of securely moving that in and out of their own network for their own routers, they would have to do that. But it doesn't make sense for clients to need that. Uh, and finally, the SOX proxy port 1080 really? is being is being blocked. Huh. So just because again, more more mischief that the, the hackers would right. use. Lord knows <laughs> what's got 1080 open. Right. Probably all kinds of things. Right. And I saw a really interesting blurb that I thought, uh-huh, well, this is not really very surprising. This is Verizon High-Speed Internet. They're, you know, the Verizon DSL service is beginning to do, is to roll out large-scale NAT for its users, which means, and this is something we could have all, we, we could have anticipated. We've talked about some ISPs doing it in the past. It has, so it's, this is not the first, but there, but Verizon is switching, and so they, they they call it CGN, and they said uh, in their in their explanation, what is CGN, and how to opt out. Said the number and types of devices using the internet have increased dramatically in recent years, and as a result, address space for these devices is being rapidly exhausted. Today's technology for IP addresses is referred to as IPv4, Internet Protocol Version 4. 
the IP addresses aligned with IPv4 are expected to be depleted at some point in the near future. Notice it was supposed to be last summer, but we somehow some survived. <laughs> so, yeah, eventually we're sure we're going to run out. Uh, the next generation of IP address space is IPv6, which will enable far more addresses, like five per grains of sand, anyway, to be assigned than IPv4. Unfortunately, most servers and other internet devices will not be speaking IPv6 for a while. So IPv4 will remain standard for some time to come. During this transitional period, in select areas for high-speed internet residential customers, Verizon will be implementing carrier-grade network address translation, CGN, or carrier-grade NAT. Verizon Fios and Verizon business customers are not impacted at this time by the change. This transition will enable Verizon to continue serving customers with IPv4 internet addresses. CGN, again, carrier-grade NAT, will not impact the access, reliability, speed, or security of Verizon's broadband services. In fact, this is me editorializing, it will improve security. Um, however, there are some applications, such as online gaming, oops, VPN access, oops, FTP service, surveillance cameras, etc., that may not work when broadband service is provided via a CGN hmm. or our customers utilizing these these types of applications Verizon provides the ability to opt out of CGN so huh. this is interesting that what this says is they are Verizon is looking at their overall IPv4 pool and seeing that they're having to begin prioritizing I would I mean the truth that is being said not publicly but in me internal meetings is the techies are saying not everybody needs a public ip and they're right your mother leo may not need a public ip um she you know wouldn't know if she had one or not and so verizon is saying we got to start prioritizing we want to give business grade customers a public ip we want to give our Fios customers a public IP. So, you know, those who are paying more and and need, for various reasons, a public IP are going to be able to keep one. But a vast population of our customers simply don't need that. And so the point is they will get a 10-dot IP. So we've, we've seen I, I, ISPs doing this before. And the reason I mentioned it increases security, you know, is the, for exactly the same reason a NAT router ever increases security. And that is that unsolicited traffic hits the, the NAT router and has nowhere to go. So, so essentially that means that Verizon will have a router outside of everybody else's router and it'll be sending 10.IPs to the, the 
the residential customers and their routers will then be turning those into 192.168 IPs. So we'll have two layers of non-routable IPs before you get out to a publicly routable IP. So um, this is foreseeable. You know, this is a, a major ISP looking at their available pool of IPv4 space and saying, okay, uh, we need to reclaim a bunch. I mean, this is a, rec this is a reclamation because right now they've got enough that all of their customers have had a public IP at their, at, at their location. So Verizon is going to reclaim massive swaths of public IP space, except for people who say, no, 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 really, I, I know enough to know I need one. I'm a gamer. I, I need a VPN into my home network. Uh, you know, I, I have surveillance cameras all over. I need to be able to get to them when I'm traveling to see what's going on and so forth. So um, I think Verizon's acting in a reasonable and a foreseeable fashion. I think it's very nice that they're allowing on a, on a, at the granularity of the customer level, their individual customers to say, no, please, I, I know enough to know I, I, I need this. And for people who don't, it's like, eh, you get a little more security because nothing unsolicited will ever hit your router again. All that noise that, that you, know, I, you know, IBR is a term I haven't used for a long time. That's the term I coined, internet background radiation. You know, the worms that never die, still out there, Code Red and NIMDA are scanning around looking for open And they never ports. will unless uh, ISPs block they, those ports, like, everywhere, right? Wouldn't they die after some sort of critical mass of blockage? But the problem is there's then random Windows things. Windows 95 machines that are sitting in a closet just continue to try to Precisely, spread them. Precisely, yeah, yep. Yeah. And, you know, Windows 95 never crashes, so it just keeps going. Um. I'm sure you heard about this. They, uh, a subcontractor that that Walmart uses, Voodoo, oh, had a yeah a physical break in to their facility, which stole uh, the computers containing hard drives with all of the account information of their customers. Now, so there's a physical break in. Yes, exactly. This is not this, and this is what makes us different than what we normally talk about. This right. was not, you know, the 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 persistent threat coming from you know overseas anywhere. This is somebody, you know, stole their hard, stole their equipment, their servers, or or whatever it is they were using to maintain their account information. Now, it's a little distressing that it took 16 days for Voodoo to get their act together and send email. Yeah. Of course. They, they just lost all of their databases, so they may not have known their customers' email addresses. Oh, maybe that's it. Yeah, maybe that's yeah. what took so long. You know, they had to like grow, go back to their backups or something in order to find I, their... I got the email. What they said is that it was only the last four digits of, this, of the uh, credit card, thank goodness. Yeah, so what they said was, he said, we, we want you to know that there was a break-in at the Voodoo offices. That's V-U-D-U, by the way, offices. On March 24th, 2013, a number of items were stolen, including hard drives. Our investigation thus far indicates that these drives contain customer information, including names, email addresses, postal addresses, phone numbers, account activity, dates of birth, and the last four digits of some credit card numbers. It's important to note 
that the drives did not contain full credit card numbers as we do not store that information. Additionally, please note that if you have never set a password on your Voodoo site and have only logged in through another site, your password was not on the hard drives. While the stolen hard drives included Voodoo account passwords, those passwords were encrypted. We believe it would be difficult to break the password encryption. By the way, they said encrypted, but I didn't hear a word salt in there anywhere. No, and, and correct. And we don't know when they say that. We know they probably mean a one-way hash, and we don't know what hash or salted and so forth. So, you know, it's good that they did something. They said, but we cannot rule out the possibility given the circumstances of this theft. You know, it's so, so trivial to password protect a hard drive. Oh, I mean, the, the, this is, there's never been a better, a better case study for TrueCrypt and whole drive yeah. encryption. Yeah. All they had to do was to do that. And they could just, they would say, well, okay, zero impact from the theft of our hard drives. Zero. Yeah, because they can't get it. They, yeah. And, and so stupid. I mean, I do that on my um, portable drives because I figure I could leave it lying around. I don't want anybody to get into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, they they did something not quite right. So, but they, and and they're like saying, oh, you know, we think it's best to be proactive and ask that you be proactive as well. Security precautions. Yeah. If you had a password set on the Voodoo site, we have taken the precaution of expiring and resetting that password. But that's not true. What? Uh, <laughs> really? Because no. they well, because listen then to the instructions. To create a new password, go to voodoo.com. Click the sign-in button at the top of the page. Enter your current username and password. Oh, well, then if the bad guy has my password, that's all he has to do. Exactly. They did not expire. Stupid. (laughs) Yeah, they did not expire and and reset them. They're just saying, we're going to make you do that. So it's like, uh, okay, not so smart. Especially when they waited waited two (laughs) weeks. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, yeah. I I so, I will go in and change my password and then kill my account because I don't really need Voodoo. It's like iTunes or you know any of these. Yeah, we need you to have Voodoo so that if you know so I get if this I don't email. Receive, yes, so that so that if I don't receive these letters, you will. This was sent to me by a listener, and I thank yeah, you very much. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they do offer they're they're giving everyone a free one year. Uh, uh, protection by something called All Clear ID. Um, unfortunately, it's, pro- it's probably a scam too. I'm sure. I'm sure Walmart cost- owns it. <laughs> uh, and it's probably to get people addicted. Right. You know, ho- right. you know, hooked into the yeah, service. Automatic renewal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, we do have an interesting little bit of news about a forthcoming Firefox. We've already talked about 22, which is somewhere in the early summer. This is version 23. I get a kick out of the fact that they know that the pre-beta will be released next month on May 17th. And the, I don't know. How do you know that? That's how you get developers to commit to a release date. That's they how that is. Have, they must have a crystal ball. We, we, okay, we're committed now, kids. We're in. And the final release will be occurring on August 6th, just for all of you who would okay. rather wait. All right. What's different is... That on in Firefox 18, 
which is a couple versions ago. I think we're all on 20 now. Um, Firefox 18 introduced one of those settings that's like there's a bazillion of them. You know, if you go about colon config, you know, there's so many that you can't even begin to like look through them. You have to then use the search box to kind of begin to narrow them down. So, but that's cool. They had a setting they added called security dot mixed underscore content dot block underscore active underscore content. <laughs> so again, security, mixed content, block active content. That was, they put that in there so that people could poke around with it and experiment. With version 23, which we'll all officially get who are on the release channel on August 6th in a couple months. Well, actually, May, June, July, oh, no, more than a couple months. It'll be in beta, pre-beta for quite a while. It'll be the, for the first time turned on by default. Mm. What that means is that um, insecure, so, so insecure scripts, uh, style sheets, plug-in content, inline frames, web fonts, and web sockets will be blocked on secure pages. Now, again, this is not this is not if you went to an insecure page, nothing happens. But there are websites that are there. The page itself is delivered securely, but then they contain non-HTTPS links to insecure content. Now, browsers have long been able to and often would pop up a mixed content warning. Mixed content just means the page is secure, but you're asking, but this page is asking me, the browser, to retrieve some other objects to populate the page which are not secure. What should I do about that? So Firefox has just been permissive in warning. Um, they're gonna they're gonna stomp on that now. Now this is not display content like images, videos, or audio. So that's important. This is active content. That's going to be blocked. And I, so I think this is a nice step forward for security. They're announcing this. They're trying to make it make developers aware because, you know, stuff, this will break things. This is, I mean, this has the potential to break some sites that are, that are actually not operating as securely as they should. So breaking, you know, breaking, you know, uh, shells is how you get eggs. Or something. <laughs> you can't make an omelet without breaking some proxy uh, servers or that's something. That's what I was looking yeah. for. Yeah. Um, now, <laughs> there was a ba- bunch of noise about iMessage this week. Oh, uh, yeah. This was a yeah, mistake, I think. Yeah. Um, and I'm not even sure what was going on. But I can tell you what. I can, t- I can fill you in. Fill me in. Fill C- us in. C- CNET kind of misunderstood a DEA alert. Okay. That was sent out to police departments saying, if you see some holes in the data when you request SMS messages from carriers, you should just know that that's probably iMessage because that data is not un- is encrypted, not unencrypted. And CNET interpreted that to mean, oh, good, use iMessage because the police can't read it. But, of course, uh-huh. Apple will ha- happily hand over the contents of your iMessage upon well, request know, by police. And we, know, so. and we know that they do have the messages because if your phones are off and you turn them on 
you then receive your backlog mm -hmm. of iMessages, which Apple had been storing for you. Mm -hmm. And maybe uh, maybe they even save them if you delete them. We don't know because Apple doesn't uh, say. Uh, and well, we know and, that Apple and, can get into them because, of course, they can recover your password. So even though they may be encrypted on Apple's servers, Apple has a password. Well, yeah. And they've never documented the protocol, which is more, more worry than not. Right. Bruce Schneier... In his blog, as as always, succinctly, you know, cut through this. He he wrote, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency has complained. He said, "Perens in a classified report, not publicly, that Apple's iMessage end-to-end encryption scheme cannot be broken." On the one hand, I'm not surprised, and and this is Bruce Schneier talking. I'm not surprised. End-to-end -end encryption of a messaging system is fairly easy is a fairly easy cryptographic problem, and it should be unbreakable. On the other hand, it's nice to have some confirmation that Apple is looking out for the user's best interests and not the government's. Of course, now, and, and he, he, he fixes this in a second. He says, still, it's impossible for us to know if iMessage encryption is actually secure. It's certainly possible that Apple messed up somewhere, and since we have no idea how their encryption actually works... We can't verify its functionality. It would be really nice if Apple would release the specifications of iMessage security. And then to that, he added an edit on Monday. So several days later, he said, there's more to this story. The DEA memo simply observes that because iMessages are encrypted and sent via the Internet through Apple's servers... A conventional wiretap installed at the cellular carrier's facility, exactly as you said, Leo, isn't going to catch those iMessages along with conventional text messages, which shouldn't exactly be surprising. A search of your, I love this, Bruce says, a search of your postal mail isn't going to capture your phone calls either. Exactly. They're just, <laughs> They're just looking in the wrong place. <laughs> They're just different communications channels. Yeah. But the CNET article strongly implies that this means encrypted iMessages cannot be accessed by law enforcement at all. Not so. That is almost certainly yeah. false. Apple even says in their terms of service, we will turn your stuff over. Yes. So. Yes. And he says, the question is, whether iMessage uses true end-to-end -end encryption or whether Apple has copies of the keys. Well, we know they do. Yes. Because they can recover your password. Yes. Right? Doesn't that mean that they... Uh... Eh, they could be using ephemeral keys so they, and, and, and giving us what's called perfect forward secrecy. Ah. Um, and in fact, the protocol, there has been some reverse engineering done of, the, of a version of the iMessaging protocol on a Mac where the guts were more accessible to the guy doing the reverse engineering. And what he discovered was an amazingly complex mess. Oh, good. Uh, well, so, I mean, so there's got certificates, <laughs> certificates flying back and forth and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, if nothing else, if, if somebody really did go overboard, and, of course, that's not always a good thing because it's more easy to make mistakes in something complicated right. than in something simple. Right. And in this day and age, as Bruce says, end-to-end -end encryption is trivial. You do a Diffie-Hellman handshake to exchange a key. Nobody in the middle 
uh, is able to intercept that as long as you've got uh, uh, authentication at, of the endpoints and and you know presumably that's easy to have now yeah, too. In a, so, in a way, that kind of the the complexity of what they've implemented kind of lends one to think it's not very good. Yeah, as opposed to good, since it would be very simple to implement it well. Yes. Yeah. We but have. I would bit, think a company well, like Apple would just prefer not to know. Like, just do it right, and then you can say, "I don't know. We don't know. Go away." Wouldn't that be easier for Apple than to say, "All right, I got a subpoena. Let me go look." Well, and I didn't cover it this week in my notes because I forgot about it actually. But I'm sure you saw in the news Google really fighting back. They do. Which is nice to see. Yeah. Yes, I am too. They are saying no to these warrantless requests for yep. information. They and, have, and you know, to their credit, yeah. they have a, this is very unApple like. Google has a transparency report they publish uh, and lets you know how many requests they get, how many they've turned down, how many they've accepted. They can't, unfortunately, because of the Patriot Act, they cannot reveal raw numbers on certain requests. But the, I think I think Google does the best of anybody, at least. And Twitter's now doing this, too, by the way, at least letting people know what's going on, what governments are asking for, what information. Yeah, because as citizens, we need the information. We need the feedback in order to vote intelligently. Exactly. That's the way democracy works. Yep. So speaking of democracy, we have a Bitcoin section, Leo, because there's enough Bitcoin stuff going on. <laughs> I love um, it because well, I have Bitcoin. I'm interested now. Suddenly I'm interested. <laughs> Do you know that a 42-year-old media entrepreneur named Jeff Berwick is going to be bringing Bitcoin ATMs yeah. to a city near you soon? Well, to, 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 to a couple of countries where they, they don't like the currency anymore. Uh, yep. Uh, Cyprus is getting one. Yeah. <laughs> and as is L.A. Uh, well, that's LA interesting. LA probably just because people are hip, I guess. Uh, the article in uh, uh, CNN's money uh, uh, section said that Berwick expects to put the first two ATMs in Los Angeles and Cyprus. So, so how does this work? Weeks? I give him money and he gives me Bitcoin, or I give him Bitcoin and he gives me money. How does this work? It's a, it's a, it's it's the machine is connected to the net, and so you're able to transact your your Bitcoinage with cash, cash of the of the local currency. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it knows <laughs> I'll have to enter my passphrase or what? How do I identify myself with Bitcoin? Is it a You'll have to have an you have to have your wallet online and and a, appropriate security, but the idea would be if you have Bitcoinage in an online account, then you will be able to go to one of these machines and get money. Wow. Isn't that cool? So I want to that thank is... the 19 people who have given us Bitcoin totaling now a, a little over one whole Bitcoin. Um, you know, I I said we'd have it on the website, and I thought we would, but Radford didn't implement it. So uh, I will ask him where the hell it is. <laughs> For those of you who wanted to give us Bitcoin, uh, I apologize. But I will um, – I can show you the QR code again if that helps. Huh. I, You know, 19 people did this. This is what's going to be on the website eventually anyway. And I'll paste into the uh, chat room this Bitcoin address. So this – this long, uh, uh, it's not hex, it's a long number and an alphabetic string is my Bitcoin identifier, right? Yes, that is a globally unique ID of you. That is, you know, that's what makes you anonymous. You're just that to the Bitcoin system. Oh, well, now I'm not so anonymous anymore. Well, yeah. <laughs> but you can make many of these. 
Yes, you can have as exactly. Yeah. Yes, you can have as many of those as you want. And there's there are there are people who looked at the anonymity, and I've seen things. You know, Bitcoin's not as anonymous as you think, and so forth. But you know, it, uh, you you have the the facility for doing that. Unfortunately, a, a donor would be anonymous to me, though, right? I can't tell who they are unless they say so, because they uh, they're donating from their wallet, which I I don't know who that is. Right. Yeah, that's probably more important to them. And, of course, the bad guys are involved. We've, we've seen, I'm sure people have seen, I mean, in fact, the currency has fluctuated because of major break-ins that have occurred in some of the various exchanges. Um, it never really seems to dent the coinage very much. It recovers pretty quickly. And I think, as I said, as I said once there are many more exchanges and ATMs on every corner, uh, people won't care that much. A- and it'll also distribute... The, any damage far more uh, widely and broadly. But uh, there is now malware that is getting installed via Skype. Uh, Skype messages come up asking you to click on something, something alluring. And among other things, uh, Kaspersky discovered last Thursday a, Troj- a Win32 Trojan. They named Jorik, IRC bot dot XKT. And what's funny is it installs a Bitcoin mining engine on the user's machine and not surprisingly pins the CPU at 100%. So you're suddenly thinking, gee, why is my internet so slow? And why, why is my mouse not really keeping up with my movements and so forth. Well, yes, it's because your computer is frantically and somewhat fruitlessly attempting to mine bitcoins. Um, so it's a it, it it joins you to a you know a large bitcoin mining operation and saturates your CPU. I don't imagine it will stay hidden on an, on anyone's machine very long because the only chance it has. Uh, of mining with any chance of success, I mean, and which is diminishingly small, we'll cover in a second, is, you know, really burning up cycles. And maybe if your screensaver were on and it came to life, that would that would help <laughs> it stay hidden. If anyone even uses screensaver. Yeah, it goes anyway. to 100% right away, right? Yeah, yeah it just yeah. pins it. It's like, yeah. okay, whoa. whoa. Now, several people mentioned that because uh, you and I were talking about inflation, and we were misusing, we were using the wrong term. With Bitcoin value jumping, that's deflation. Deflation, right? Yes, James Parsons at Policy Economy uh, tweeted me. He said, "Bitcoin deflation, not inflation. Bitcoin is currency. One BTC buys less stuff right. is inflation. One BTC buys more stuff is deflation." Right, and at midday Monday, a Bitcoin was at 194.73. This morning, when I looked, it was at $232. Holy mackerel. With the last 24-hour maximum at $266 per Bitcoin. So it has been going up dramatically. But what I thought of when I saw that was, this changes the mining equation dramatically. Um, That's right. If it really does, it makes it uh, you know more feasible. Go look at that link before I mention it, Leo. Okay, that's right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
um, just so you can bring the page up. Um, these guys, butterflylabs.com, they are the people who are in, the, and they've, they've got an ASIC, an application-specific IC, that a little cute little black box, a, the Bitcoin miner, which is available <laughs> for pre-order. It's cute. It is. It's got a little, little red button there, a little red dot saying, I'm cranking away mining, here. Mining, mining. Okay, this is 50 giga hashes per second. Is that fast? 50 billion hashes per second. It it blows everything else away. You're kidding. It's only 2,500 bucks. I could be rich. All I well, need to do is get, uh, what, two bitcoins? No, 10 bitcoins. What, and I'd what's be... interesting is that I could take the 50 I made, sell them now, and buy four of those with a couple grand left over. So mm. now the problem is this is not uh, – you and I are not the first people to have this idea, Leo. Yeah. Um, no. But but my point is that with this kind of deflation of the Bitcoin, it means that these machines are incredibly cheap in Bitcoinage relative to their ability to mint coins. The other thing it means is that all this will do is instantly change the landscape of how difficult it is for the rest of us to make Bitcoins. By the it way, just, you don't have to cash in your Bitcoins. You could just pay for it in Bitcoins. They take Bitcoins. Of course they do. <laughs> but, you know, I think some of this is speculative, that people are figuring that the value of Bitcoins is going to go up a lot, Right. I think that's the, certainly the nature of speculation. It's, it's speculation, a lot of this. Yeah I, yeah, I would say if you look at the curves right now, they're just too new. I mean, this thing is just going up crazy. And, you know, I, as I said to you before we were recording, I think it is so fun that we and our listeners are getting to participate in this. We covered it years ago. I turned on just a regular i7, a core i7, and woke up, you know, after two days, and there was fifty bitcoins. Stop those telling people about were, that. You're, those, those were the were days, the days yeah. Yeah, my friends. Now. That's not the yeah. case anymore. By the that way, won't work. Bitcoin now is down to one hundred forty dollars at Mount Gox. So, wow, uh, that's amazing drop. It's extremely uh, I volatile. This, you should. You I should looked realize. this morning. It was it was two thirty one. Yeah, it's extremely volatile. Um, what is Mount Gox across the top? It'll show you the low in the last twenty four yeah, hours. The low and was one hundred eleven bucks. Okay. The high, and the is, high 260, is 266. Yep. Yeah, you yep. saw the high. Yeah. Weighted average 219. Well, and remember what happens when 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 these kind of highs hit, people cash out. There are people who are saying, oh, I'm leaving now. And so they sell it's just off. It's like the stock that, market. You could sell off. Exactly like the stock market. And that depresses the currency for a while. Then it'll come back. So Radford then, just came running in. It's the Bitcoin uh, QR code on our website is now up. <laughs> so uh, go to twit.tv, the front page there, and wait till the rotator comes around. And uh, so, now I think we're going to get tons of bitcoins. Tons. I do really, <laughs> I do really, really think it's cool that you know we covered this back when it was just nascent, when it was happening. We talked about the technology. I said this thing works. And in the fullness of time, I mean, during the podcast, we're getting to see the birth of a currency which 
you know, a virtual internet currency. It's just really cool. Uh, we have a Q&A question about some consequences, which I'll wait to get to, which is sort of interesting. Good. Um, Mark and his team at Schmooshbox achieved their goal. Yay! Days ago. Uh, last time I looked, again, a few hours ago, they were at 132 backers. They were at 26... Thousand hundred sixty-five, and with a target of twenty k. So they're they've exceeded their target. They've got nine days to go now. Leo, since you are a frequent and somewhat bruised Kickstarter user, <laughs> um, click that link uh, there in my show notes because okay. this is very cool. If you did not know before about Kicktrack dot com, k i c k t r a q dot com, it is wonderful. And look at the charts that these guys show you. So this is a site that monitors Kickstarter projects. This is good. And shows you all kinds of cool stuff. And even like worst case and best case projected into the future based on where you are now, where they will probably be, you know, at 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 time of, of um, final closure of the project. So. Very cool. Kicktrack, T-R-A-Q dot com. Cool. Yeah. Now, yeah. I just got uh, an email from my Pebble Watch saying, well, because you ordered color, we've had some trouble. Would you like black instead? And I said, yes, just send me something, anything, <laughs> anything. Everybody's already reviewed it and decided it's junk anyway. Uh, uh, speaking of junk. Yes. I'm sorry that I ever mentioned the remake of The Evil Dead. Oh yeah, see, I got it. Got terrible reviews. I was wondering oh, what you thought. I walked out, Leo. Oh dear. Oh dear. I, I, dear. I, you know, the setup was fine. <sighs> then it began. The trouble began to happen, and after about twenty minutes of just really pointless interhuman brutality, I mean, some I just I just closed my eyes and waited, listened to the soundtrack to wait for it to be over. I just thought, what am I doing? Why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> this was. I'm not a. I like. I don't like that kind of movie. I don't ever go to see those kinds of movies. Um, this was awful. Uh, I called it. I, I I tweeted. I said the Evil Dead remake. I walked out. A pointless, brutal gore fest. None of the original classic movies charm, fun, wit, and humor. And I have to say, the the Evil Dead Two, which was with the, the, the one that then led into Army of Darkness, it really is funny. I mean, it's it's doesn't take itself seriously at all. It's just wonderful. It's you know why there's a, why it's a cult classic. But this this remake, oh wow! I mean, I know there's a market for people who want to go for some reason and see this just incredible gore. Uh, uh, no, that's not me. <laughs> they said so. it was gory, modernly gory. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh well. Oh, but I mean, oh yeah. Anyway, I've said enough. Uh, <laughs> I saw Justified, by the way. I watched the uh, the I'm pilot so and I enjoyed it. Now, is the pilot uh, typical of the whole season? Often pilots yes. uh, are are you know different from what happens no, when they get a this green thing, light. This thing stays good. good. We're in, I think, good. our fourth season. It's got a fifth good. season already set up. It was very funny. Was, it was it was very funny. I had enjoy. I no, enjoyed th- it. this is it is. In fact, I've I've. I've seen some feedback from our listeners who have gone through the first season and they just they they're they can't wait to get more. Yeah, so yeah. I, I can vouch for it. It's it's terrific. Good. Um good, good, in good. nerd humor, 
Simon uh, Zarafa, who tweets often, sent me something that he found. I asked him where you found it, and he couldn't really find the track back its provenance, but I kind of got, thought it was just clever. He said, password must contain a capital letter, a number, a plot, a protagonist, <laughs> with, some, with some character development, and a surprise ending. Uh, that's a good one. Yeah, I love it. It is funny. Now, here's 90 seconds, Leo, of if you want to just inter- inject this video into the broadcast, our li- our audio listeners will be able to hear it. They won't be able to see it. I did tweet this link because this is wonderful. And, you know, Chatner, I, I just take my hat off to him. Um, he's, he's, he's a class act. He is very funny. So it's Shatner versus the Gorn. Yep. Let me turn on my. Uh, is this? Is there audio? Is there? Oh, this yeah. is your review. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Uh, no, it it it's a. It's. Oh a, no! I got your review of the host for some reason in that link. Let me go to your Twitter. What? I think. Oh my goodness! You're right. It's the bad link. Yeah, it's a bad. Wow. Link. So let me Sorry let me go to your Twitter and uh, I'll get it from there. Yeah, the Twitter is bit.ly slash sggrc to remind our listeners if you want to quickly grab... It's kind of a long way to go. You could just go to twitter.com slash sggrc. Yes, you could. But, okay. <laughs> he, may, yes. he makes bitlies out of us all. All right, let's just see here. I'm going to scroll down. The Evil Dead, only one year left. Why didn't I think of that? Wonderful time sink. Here you go. 90 seconds short. Shatner versus the Gorn. Rated T. Oh, this is a game. Well, we don't know. You keep getting me killed. I thought you had my back. You got to see this to uh, uh-huh. appreciate it. Apparently, there's he's playing a video game against the Gorn, but with a Gorn. He punches the Gorn. Gorn punches back. Now they're in a very slow motion Gorn battle. Williams, almost ninety now, I think. He's he just it was it was just his birthday by it's the like way. Eighty something, right? <laughs> He's doing pretty good for. <laughs> oh, he boxes the Gorn's ears. Now they have to Which take a break. <laughs> He's out of breath. So I guess this is a video game. This is a, an ad for him. He's 82. There you go. Pretty good for an 82-year-old. That was a recreation. Uh, Trekker John Slanina says video game. that was a recreation of the actual battle. Oh, wait a minute. Let's go back. Now you're overacting. Clinch for clinch. Oh, slowly <laughs> worked their way through it. Of the actual now, battle from whatever the first yes generation. A- any serious Trekkie will remember Kirk battling the Gorn, where you know this the, the Gorn is extremely butch. Uh, it, it's it's a lizard creature. Looks like a Godzilla it, a little bit. But it, yeah, Godzilla. But it moves very slowly. Right. So you know Kirk runs around in circles and dances and bobs and weaves, and the Gorn picks up large you know fi- you know foam rocks. And throws them, and they sort of bounce unconvincingly as Kirk dodges them. And then finally, he like you know, you know, hits him simultaneously on the sides of the head, which you know turns out the Gorn has very sensitive ears. Who you know who knew? He boxes and, uh, the Gorn's ears, and it's uh, all over. 
Anyway, so anyone, uh, if you're a Trekkie and you didn't see my my link in my tweet uh, to our listeners, I'm saying you've really you need to go find this because it's it's a treat. And Shatner at 82, I mean, he's not taking himself seriously, and and it's a great little piece. So 90 awesome. seconds awesome. worth worthwhile. Awesome. And uh, while I was going through the Q and A bag, I did see not a spinright uh, note, uh, which is normally the way my I sound when I'm heading into a spin right. Uh, but just a note from Tony Fishpool in Dartford, England, who said, Wow, just finished Wormhole, read all three books in less than a week. All three were page turners. Thanks for the tip, Steve, said Tony. And I just well, I wanted to remind our listeners they, they are up on Audible. Uh, this is uh, Wormhole is the third book in the Roe, R H O, Agenda trilogy. So. Uh, our listeners have really been enjoying it. Neat. And I do have a, a now. This is this is one that you know I I would say I'm I'm not making this up, but we know we are. We know I'm not making this up. Uh, but you might think, okay, really? Uh, Stephen C. Zimmerman sent, and we received on the seventh of April on Sunday, uh, a spinright testimonial. He said, "What a superior program, Mister Gibson." I work for an international communications corp, and one day a young fellow was complaining about his wife's computer. It had just failed, and all of the recent pictures of his wife's father, who had just passed away, went with the PC. I asked him if I could take a look at it. He said, if you can recover those pictures, I'll give you this car. It was a 1997 Honda Civic Coupe. Well, to make a long story short, Spinrite 6 did its thing. And not only were the, not only were the pics recovered, but the whole PC is renewed. And I have a new I car. Gave, I gave him the PC, and he signed over the title. That's awesome. So, Steve, I thank you for your hard work. I, love I it. I, So, Steve, I can thank your hard work. For my current mode of transportation, 31 miles per gallon and still going strong, 241,000 miles on the Black Beauty, Stephen Zimmerman. He took the car. So, Steve, thank you. (laughs) Nice job, Steve. Nice job, Steve. (laughs) And uh, we're going to get to our questions. We've got 12 of them, some great ones. I want to remind everybody, we've talked about it before our man packs are still available. If you uh, haven't taken advantage of the man packs offer from Twit, it's still there at manpacks.com slash Twit. Manly goods on a schedule. Actually, I need some more shampoo. I get my underwear. I get my socks. I get my grooming. And you mentioned you like this best shaving kit, which is uh, TSA approved sizes of shaving stuff. Really yes. great things at man packs. And, uh, and just fun to get. Every three months I get underwear in the mail. I know it sounds strange, but it's fabulous. You can shop at Man Packs. Pick all the wonderful Man Packs items in the Man Packs store. Uh, shirts, socks, briefs, boxers. And then they have something that I've never heard of called boxer briefs. For those of you who can't decide. <laughs> Grooming aids like shampoo, shaving, razors, uh, condoms, of course, Real men use condoms and uh, even vitamins as well. So it's all there. And if you want to save a little bit of dough, you can. If you visit manpacks.com slash twit, 
You'll get $10 off your first order of $30 or more or buy a $50 gift card for $40. Manpacks.com slash twit for the man in your life. And now we return to Security Now, already in progress. In progress. <laughs> uh, I got questions for you, Steve. You ready? You betcha. You feel good? You feel smart? Ready to go. Let's go with question numero uno of our listener-driven potpourri number 165. Quickie, a, twi- a Twitter question from Dan Lofat, which is either a Chinese name or he's been on that low-carb diet or something. I don't know. It's a diet in Chicago. Steve, is there a way to mint bitcoins using distributed computing, like uh, through a home network? Um, you could certainly have more machines running the bitcoin mining process, but there is, by the way, by the nature of the way it works, there is no way to pool their computing resources. Oh, interesting. You Even, can't, it's not threat. You can't thread it. Correct. Even Bitcoin mining pooling, which is a new thing that has arisen, because the the chance of an individual scoring a Bitcoin has d- continued to drop as the number of people minting them has increased, the 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 percentage, you know, the chance of getting one has dropped. So what people have done is they've they've agreed to pool their resources, and the idea is that when anyone in the pool gets a Bitcoin, they will divide them evenly based on the amount of computing power they have put into the pool. It's like when so uh, it, the, the office buys a lottery ticket. Yeah, they, yeah exactly. You share it based exactly. on how much you put in. Which is nice. So it's, yeah. it's so it's suddenly not an all or nothing, but it's a, oh, look, I got, you know, so, you, you know, and the larger the pool is, the greater the chance that the collective resources of the pool will score one Bitcoin, which everyone then shares uh, proportionally, and that's the smallest so, denomination you get in mining is a, a Bitcoin, one coin. Yeah, that you yes, one coin per per solution to the hash, and that problem keeps increasing. But also remember that every four years, the the amount you are awarded is cut. Uh, um, it, it is is also cut. So that's why you and got so, fifty because you got you got in early. And today you only get twenty five uh, when when you solve the problem. So every four years that's cut in half, and so that will keep going down as the difficulty also keeps going up. And as I've learned, because uh, people are donating bitcoins to us, uh, you can donate any fraction of a bitcoin. Bitcoins can yes. be small, you know, divided kind of infinitely. And that's why they have a future. That you know that that's why, for example, I've got fifty bitcoins. Apparently now worth depending upon what time of day it is, either twelve thousand dollars or you know. Six. Promise me you won't jump out of a window if there's a Bitcoin crash. That's all I ask. Nah, no, no. Nah. Uh, Chivalry Bean raises a point though with these bit with Bitcoin mining, uh, which is it's not merely the cost of the hardware. As you can see, the hardware is can be expensive, but it's the cost of the energy used to run that hardware and also energy used to cool the server room. <laughs> uh, he says, is there any way to measure that? energy use on his computer and you know that prompted me because this is a this is something i think our users our listeners would be interested in there is an a, a surprisingly inexpensive meter which amazon sells for 17 dollars called kill a watt k-i-l-l w-a-t-t yes yeah and what's cool about kilowatt is it you know so it, it's a 
you plug it into the wall and then you plug something, an appliance, into it. And you're able to tell it what your electric company charges you for electricity, um, either across 24 hours or, you know, evening versus day, if you've got the kind of billing where your power costs less at night than it does during the day and so forth, you're able to put that into it. And so, and it will first measure the gross total electrical usage of whatever it is you have plugged into it and convert that to pennies, convert it into your currency. So you can actually see what this device, so, you know, it might be like a refrigerator and a refrigerator doesn't draw energy constantly because it's thermostatically controlled and it, so its compressor switches on and off and on and off and on and off. So this thing actually measures the instantaneous energy usage and then accumulates it over the, uh, uh, it's, you know, uh, over a growing period. And you're able to look at it and say, oh, this is how much this costs me per month. To have this thing on, so you could certainly plug your Bitcoin mining box in and figure out if it's time to unplug your Bitcoin mining box based on how much it's mining for you. So kill a watt, K I L L A W A T T, seventeen bucks at Amazon. Good deal. Yeah, and we've we've talked about those I think on the Gizwiz and uh, and you even used them and so forth. So uh, yeah, yep, neat, neat thing. Yeah. David Johnston, Sydney, Australia, asks, do you mean to say the RC4 implementation in TLS is broken? <laughs> hey, Steve, love the show, blah, blah, blah. I now feel bad for having written that. Regarding the... <laughs> Regarding That's the recent, nice. I know, I like nice, that. David. Regarding the recent news involving RC4 and TLS, does this mean that TLS fails to warm up the cipher? I regard failing to warm up the 256-bit array as failing to correctly implement the cipher, so... Is the situation actually one of widespread implementation failure? And if this is true, I'm bewildered. As every textbook says, the cipher needs warming. Also, it should be noted that a warm-up run of 256 operations was only ever the recommended amount. I use 1024 just to be sure. I don't know if anyone had fully determined that uh, 256 was enough before now. Do you know where that number, 256, originally came from? Thanks for the great show. Dave Johnston, Sydney, Australia. What the hell is he talking about? So, okay, what we talked about, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, was the the cryptanalysis of the use of RC four in 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 SSL TLS HTTPS, you know, the secure web communications, where if there was some way to cause the browser to repetitively emit exactly the same query then because the same plain text was being delivered over and over and over, the slight statistical variances at the beginning of RC4 would show themselves. And it turns out it was much worse than was believed. So what happened is that RC4 was really badly implemented in the original WEP Wi-Fi encryption. There, there was no warming being done. And so it was, you know, really bad. There were bad keys and there was very, you know, the, the, the keys related to the pseudo-random bitstream coming out of the cipher uh, strongly. So they fixed that by warming it up a little, but not enough. They thought at the time it was enough, but 
no one really looked at it to say is 256 is discarding the four, the first 256 bytes from the cipher enough i don't know why they didn't do 1024 david's doing 1024 i'm proud of him we all wish that the world was doing 1024 because all of us are having to put rc4 at the top of our server list in order to avoid the beast attack right. which attacks unless you don't have RC4 as the preferred cipher for the server to choose among those the client is making available. Unfortunately, it's not as strong as we wish it were. So what, we're, what we really need to do is move ourselves away from SSL 3.0, which is the same as TLS 1.0, and get up to 1.1 and 1.2 universally, which does no longer have the problem that the beast attack uses, then we'll be able to pull RC4 down off the top of the list. Or we could do another version of TLS, although I don't think anyone wants to, where we just warm RC4 up further in order to get get that that the non-sufficiently pseudo-random off the front of, of the key stream. So it's just they didn't look close enough. They thought... 256 ought to be plenty, hmm. but they didn't really analyze it. When they did, they said, oops. Now, again, remember, it takes, what is it, 2 to the 40 number, like 2 to the 40 identical queries from the browser. 2 to the 32 is 4.3 billion. So 2 to the 40 is an additional 256. I mean, that number seems high, so it may be less than that. Um, I'm not quite remembering the number. But still, it's a disturbingly low number from crypto standpoint, meaning that it's a theoretical vulnerability. Still, And here we are. We, we have to have RC4 first in order to avoid Beast, but we're not happy with RC4 being chosen because there's this theoretical problem. So right at the moment, we're in this awkward place of not really having something that you know, any solution that works as well as, as we would like until we get clients and servers that are able to move to the, to the newer versions of the TLS protocol. Phew. Whew. <laughs> would it be better to have a pick a, a random number of uh, times to warm it up between 256 and 1024 or something like that? Or does it matter? There's no, there's no recycling in the warm-up, is there? Uh, if you chose a random number, then you need to transmit that to oh, the other end. Okay. So it knew they how both have to. to do the same. Exactly. They have to be synchronized. Got it. Oh, for Bannery, a regular uh, in many of our shows, including the Gizwiz, as well as uh, apparently Security Now in Chatsworth, California, has some thoughts about defeating employer spying. As a longtime Spinrite owner, listening, listening to Security Now since number one, numero uno, I must speak up about defending or defeating employer spying approaches. While we could debate the pros and cons of employers implementing systems that can track employee activity on company computers and networks, there is one obvious element. They can. Not only does the technology exist, it's legal for them to do so. Most employers now have a policy statement about limiting employee use of computers to company business. Many of these policies include termination as a consequence of violating the policy. Rather than defeating such systems, maybe people need to ask, hey, <laughs> if I'm so worried that my employer might see what I'm doing during office hours, maybe I shouldn't be doing it. I understand how your advice is helpful in public access locations, but in the office, it's pretty obvious we should be working on company business. He does have a good point. I have to agree with him on that. Right? Yes. Um, and as, an, as a boss, 
<laughs> so, so I, I guess my branching off point here is to say I'm not suggesting that it's wrong. I've never suggested it's wrong. I'm only, as always, looking out for the end user, and I just want the end user to be informed. So I'm not, I mean, at no point, for example, is this, is my SSL fingerprinting meant to say this is bad for employers to be doing this. I'm just saying I would like to empower users to know. And I've said on this podcast before, every such the monitor of of all of the machines being monitored should have a you know a, a half inch high strip permanently affixed to it that says all of your internet communications within this company and on this machine are subject to monitoring for the protection of the company for anti malware filtering and so forth so you know act accordingly that i mean it, it ought to be right there but but the problem is you get into this situation where, you know, the management doesn't feel comfortable being that blatant. They or maybe they add the technology, you know, just to sort of test to see how it goes. It's like, oh, well, we'll tell people later if we end up keeping it, so forth. It's like, nah, I just want to empower people. So I, I completely understand that in this in the era of malware, as as we end up with HTTPS everywhere, always having secure connections, not just during login, but all of our communications, a company needs to be able to filter what comes in and out of their network onto their machines. After all, the machine is the terminus of, of, this, of this. And it's so I get that. All I want is for the end user to be able to see. And in fact, I would argue that this, that my stuff helps people know that they are being monitored so they will respect their employer's uh, intentions for the way the computer and network would be used. Yeah, I mean, speaking as a, as a business owner, I'm liable for stuff people do on my computers. Yep. And, uh, you know, if they're surfing porn and somebody sues us for harassment, it's our fault. So yep. uh, we don't monitor because I trust my employees. But I would, if I, if I, you know, if when I've been an employee, I've assumed that anything I'm doing is visible on the corporate network. Just assume that. Uh, if you want to check out through Steve's systems, uh, check out whether they are monitoring it or doing a man in the middle on the SSL certificate, that's fine. But assume, you should assume you're being monitored. Yeah, back when I had a 23 people there were some embarrassing yeah. things that got that came out of the printer we had a we it was back in the days of networked shared printers and i think uh on email the print button was right next to the you know next <laughs> message button or something and oh there was some interesting things coming and going yeah, yeah. just assume that uh, i mean there's a legal responsibility the courts have always said that uh, employers have the right to do that you know, you're not going to win in that case, and uh, be prudent to just assume it, right? Yep. I think. Yep. Mike, anonymous for reasons that will become clear to all, received an odd UPnP result on your tester. Stephen Leo, longtime security analyst, love the show. A couple of weeks ago, I ran the UPnP scanner while at work. I can't figure out how to interpret these results. The test reported that we did respond to the probes. However, the IP reported was 10.1.1.1. I'm thinking 
we're vulnerable, but I wanted to get your opinion on the results first before telling the appropriate people. I'm sure our security team will be keenly interested if we are indeed vulnerable. We found out about six months ago we had a breach, and the bad guys had been in there for quite a long time. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> so they locked the wrong door. Thanks for all you do and all the advice and insight you've given over the years. What okay, is the so 10.1.1.1 a... result? Well, Leo, if, if you bring up Google and search for UPNP space test. Okay. And look at the first link that comes up. UPNP Guess who? UPNP test. Good job, Steve Gibson. You're number one. But. And then who's number two? But. Um, no. Number one. Yeah. It's not the test. It's the sample page. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> the Google result says yes. UPNP rejected. So if you click yes. that and you thought that <laughs> you thought that now, you were being tested, that's oh, it's good you put a banner up there now. Yes, this is good. You see the yes, that big red banner, you cannot possibly miss the fact. That's cool. So, and it's even scrolls it's, along with it. That's good. Nice yep. job. Thank little, you. I little CSS baby. I did that yesterday morning. Um, somebody and I, I, I had a tweet, a Twitter conversation. I mean, I would have been puzzled by Mark's comment even now, right. but, uh, a guy named Ryan and I went back and forth night before last because he was actually trying it saying, Steve, um, I'm sure my IP is not 10.1.1.1. Right. He said, and, 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 and so forth. And so finally he, he, when there were about three or four tweets back and forth and he said, Oh, i figured out he says i got the link from google and it's the sample page yeah. it's like oh yeah. and so yes i immediately well you were smart enough to use 10.1.1.1 for your sample ip address which is good that, that that's yeah, kind of a hint yeah. there right because that's an unroutable address that's a reserved address right. exactly well actually yeah. it's my own internal network and that's an and i forced that ip which is not a machine so that it would not respond to anything uh, in order to generate that test and capture the screen and, and mm-hmm, so forth. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so yeah, I put up immediately. So Mike, the answer is, and I did respond to Mike already when I saw his email, uh, that was the sample page. I immediately put up a, uh, you know, a banner to notify all future visitors because there are, there had been some confusion and I just didn't realize I didn't, I wasn't, wasn't worried about it until I saw that Google had indexed me in the number one result when you, when you look for a UPNP <laughs> test. Yeah. Now you know about robots.txt, right? Yeah. You could exclude that page in robots.txt so that Google wouldn't index it in future. But you don't want to yeah. hurt your result, though. So, <laughs> Well, what I need to do, I, right now I'm, I'm unhappy because you got to go, to get to that test, you have to go down in through Shields up, and you get this weird-looking URL, which is uncomfortable. And but I just need Google to Google spiders make... through it, right? So it, it, I don't know why it used that as the a result, however, but that's odd. Yeah. 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 Um, anyway, th- I'm glad we could clear that up. And good idea with the banner. That's cool. Guy in Nottingham, England, found a... I know it's I know it's Guy because he's in Nottingham. If we were in Paris, France, it'd be Guy. Found a port opened by his TV box? Running shields up. I noticed port 1024 was open. Something I've never had before in my occasional checks. I, uh, I looked at my router and found that port 24 was being forwarded to 8081 on the IP for my new TV recorder box. This runs a new service, UView, here in the UK, which includes internet on-demand TV. 
I scanned the open port 8081. It reported a service called, this is scary, Black Ice-Ice Cap running. Now I'd, now I'd be running to the dictionary. Should I be worried about this activity? Thanks for the great informative show. I've learned lots over the years. I wish I could say I grasped everything fully. Oh, and my router does not have the UPnP problem. So thanks for yet another great tool. By the way, that's at shieldsup at grc.com if you want to test. Regards, Guy, Nottingham, England. Okay, so here's what's happened. Um, he's got a TV recorder, which is using UPnP the way it was intended to be used to open a port through his router for itself. So, at, so... And this looks like it's, I mean, I'm, it's interesting that it's 1024. That's the lowest number non-service port available. So, so it must have said, you know, give me whatever port you've got now. And the router said, well, we're starting off at 1024, so here you go. And then what that allows is for incoming unsolicited traffic to go through the NAT router and get to this box. Um 8080 is sort of the traditional alternate port from port 80 for for the web. You know, uh, HTTP protocol runs on port 80, but that's down in the service port range, those ports from 1 to 1023. So there ha oh and in less in Uni in the Unix world, only services running as root are able to um, create listening ports down in the service port region below 1024. So, right. Yeah. So so users who wanted to like run their own server needed to use ports above 1024, and so it just became common to you to use 8080. So this use of 8081 is is related to that. It's you know obviously one more than the, the traditional 8080. Um, What's significant is this notion of black ice hyphen ice cap. When he said, I scanned the open port 8081 and it reported a service called black ice ice cap running. Should I be worried about this activity? No. What, what, this, what, what is meant here is that in the dictionary of what ports different things use, port 8081 was once used by a firewall called Black Ice. Black Ice Defender, I remember it. Yeah. Yes. And and so Ice Cap was a some facility that they had which which it chose for itself port 8081. You know, in the same way that FTP chooses 21 and 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 web servers use 80. So, so that if you, if you had port 80 open, it would have said, oh, you have a web service running. This one had 8081, so it says, oh, you've got black ice ice cap running. Well, no, you don't. It's just a lookup. It just says this is what one thing that uses that. Traditionally, that's been the port, exactly. And when somebody updates their list, they'll say, oh, you must have whatever Never. that is running <laughs> on his t you know, TV DVR recorder stuff. box. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, if you, you, you might try... Closing, you might try disabling UPnP if you if this worries you, but this does mean that incoming traffic is always able to go to this TV recorder box, and the only concern would be if it has not been written well, somebody might be able to maliciously take it over 
and then use it to gain access to your network. So that's always the concern of allowing devices to map ports, you know, through to themselves is then anybody in the outside can get to those devices. And that's a cause for some concern. You know, it's easy Maybe. to think of why it might do that. It might be pu- the uh, service might be pushing uh, TV guide updates down yes. instead of having it the machine pull, which it wouldn't have to open a port for. It's pushing it to the machine whenever it's got an update. Things like right, that. and so 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 that so the machine would be advertising to some central server. Hey, whenever you've got something for me, this is where I am at right. this IP and this port. Right, they may even register it. You know, that may be part of the deal when you get the device. Advait in India wonders why not cloud your servers. You've been sharing the news and adventures of setting up your new servers, but I was wondering why you do it yourself. Why don't you virtualize your new servers? Have them reside on some cloud service like uh, EC2 or Rackspace, which you talk about all the time, or something similar. In this day and age, why mess around with managing your own hardware when you can just have them be virtual machines up in some cheap, highly reliable, highly redundant cloud service, blah, 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 effusive praise, spin right owner, Advait? Well, so the answer is probably more than anything, control. You're a do-it-yourself kind of guy. I'm a, Well, and in some areas, I'm a control freak. Yeah. And, for example, we constantly, we constantly report here on this podcast of breaches of people's networks and systems that affect all their customers. And I run an e-commerce system selling Spinrite. And, you know, I'm not willing to to release responsibility, which I'm fully w- willing to take by, like, sending all this off to some virtual cloud and then have Amazon say, oh, we're really sorry. We thought that our, you know, the, the virtual machines were insulated from each other, but and we've already seen instances of cross-virtual machine contamination in these shared hosting systems where they weren't as isolated as we believed. So, you know, my feeling is, you know, I I could see maybe you know, eventually I want to do web-based forums. That's a, a, one of the things I want to set up in the future. And there's no way I'm going to put those on the GRC's main server. I, I'm just not comfortable with so much of somebody else's code running on the same box as you know, my core services and my e-commerce stuff, all of which I've written myself from scratch. So I could easily see put hosting that somewhere else, except that now I've already got a rack and bandwidth and everything at level three. So I'll just give it a physically separate machine and isolate it on the network so that, you know, no leakage can occur between boxes. But, you know, so there, so since I'm already committed to having my own stuff, as you said, Leo, I am a do-it-myselfer. I love that aspect of working on this yeah, stuff. how you learn. It's a good way to yeah. learn. That's, I, yeah. you know. And I have to say, too, my experience has been it's not necessarily cheaper. They're there to make money. And I have a very nice fixed-price contract with level three i buy it on the so-called my bandwidth on 95.5 which is to say that that they take the highest five percent of my usage through the month and they charge me for 95 percent of what that is um and that is if it's over 
my my cap, which is 10 megabits. And so I spike, you know, 50 megabits and so forth higher all the time. But, you know, it's people downloading, you know, all the podcasts at once and so forth. And then it sort of settles down so that our average ends up being being, you know, probably about half that around five megabits. Um, and that so that gives me the flexibility to offer good bandwidth and uh, and good responsiveness yet um, at, at, at a price that makes sense for me. And I just, you know, in my experience, as long, when you start really trying to source things from Amazon, what was it? Oh, I, I did. I put all of our um, audio up there. I do have all of our audio backed up, but it's not coming from there. I did have it coming from there, and it was expensive. So it's not cheap to actually have band, to actually be using that bandwidth in the cloud. We should point out that Steve's kind of like half cloudy. He's not running the servers out of his house. As you can tell, he has... He's got a what's called a colo, where yes. you buy the hardware and put it in there, and but they're but you're in a network operations center run by another company, and they yes they they provide power, air conditioning, right. and security, and basically so it's you know and I so I have a full rack uh, over in Tustin, so, and so you are in the cloud. It's just that you're buying your own hardware and running and manage you're managing your own servers we do the same thing we lease yep. servers from soft layer but we manage them ourselves there is another level above uh, uh, above that where you can get managed servers and then there's finally this new thing which Rackspace, uh, amazon google and others are doing where you know it's True kind of all virtual it's fully virtual you don't know or care right. about the hardware and in fact there's certain advantages to this because the hardware is distributed often uh, geographically so, um, you know, it, if there's a power outage in Seattle, it may not affect you because your servers are all over the place and that there's a failover and, uh, you're, you know, it's all, it's all distributed. Um, but I don't think, Steve, you're telling people, oh, you should do your own e-commerce solution either. Steve knows oh, no, what no. he's doing. <laughs> no. And, it, it, and it, it, this it, is a unique situation that is not typical by any means. We we were being pursued by Digital River. He which wrote is his own software, folks. <laughs> and 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 they finally called Sue after we didn't return their messages or anything. And 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 they got Sue, my my operations gal, on the line. And and she finally said, "Look, you know, he's he's writing. I think this was when I was in the process. He's writing his own e-commerce system." And the guy at the other end of the phone said, "Oh, no, no, people don't write those." <laughs> Somebody does. <laughs> Apparently. She, did she tell him he's writing it in assembly language? <laughs> that, he would have just he would have said, no. <laughs> well, who am I talking to here? George Morrow? What is this? Yeah. I mean, so this is, a, this is a unique situation. And, in fact, I think you would counsel that unless you really, really, really are experienced in this, you should not be writing your own e-commerce solution. You should be using an e-commerce solution from a trusted provider who knows what they're doing. These things are non-trivial. And the last piece I would mention is I don't know that I even could host GRC because GRC is very special. You know, we've got custom-made right. UDP packets and TCP packets right. and all kinds of low-level networking stuff coming and going out of our systems. It took Level 3 a while to get used to me. They were saying, uh, Steve, what's going on over here? And, they, and then now they all know. They say, okay, just leave him alone. He's kind of strange, but... You know, he seems to be doing a good thing. I remember when uh, uh, 
Kevin Rose set up Dig for the first time. They have a colo. They had a cage, just like you. And they bought hardware. They brought it in. They installed it. But that was how you had to do it in those days. If And I'm sure with Milk and his later enterprises, when, when nowadays when you start up an app or you start up something else, you generally do run it on a cloud. It's cheaper to start up that way. And, uh, and you can scale it up as needed and so forth. Um, yeah, and for most people's servers, I think that's a perfectly acceptable oh yeah. solution. Oh, yeah. You know, you just sort of create the service, and then you move and you upload the content, and most, now you've got a site. Most people don't not, need dedicated servers. They certainly don't need a colo. Right. Yeah. But you, that's nothing like what GRC is doing, where right, I'm doing, right. you know, low-level network packet. Well, Steve's his own sysadmin. If, yeah. <laughs> I used to be my own sysadmin, and I got myself in a lot of trouble, but I did it because I wanted to learn, and I did. I learned how to use cPanel and all that stuff. I did a great job. I see you looking at the clock. Don't worry about that. Let's continue on. <laughs> Brent in Illinois, he has a question as long as we're talking about your servers. Uh, I thought I heard you mention sometime back you were using one of the BSDs, OpenBSD, FreeBSD, NetBSD, or one of those. Recently, I heard about your server upgrade. You said you went from Windows 2000 to Windows 2008 R2. So what do you use? Both. Um, this is an instance of, you know, the proper tool for the proper purpose. Uh, I am a FreeBSD person. I was turned on to FreeBSD by... Brent, uh, Brett Glass, who I mentioned before, um, Brett said, you know, this is the one you want. And I think Brett was right. I love FreeBSD. I've got a FreeBSD server running at level three, also one here. Um, at level three, it is my OpenVPN terminus. So I run OpenVPN on that box, but also I run INN, the traditional NNTP, the network news server, that which hosts GRC's news groups. Um, <laughs> no, you're you're in that on NNTP. That's hysterical. Oh you yeah, you are very yeah. old school. <laughs> yeah, we've got a we've got a very active, super oh, useful cool. group of, gu of gurus who hang out there. It's news.grc.com is the is the machine, and so and that's a free BSD box. Mm -hmm. So I use you know the appropriate one for the uh, for the appropriate application. It's but Unix. I don't it's I don't strong. code to it as yeah. much. Uh, because I'm a Windows developer, right, so right. I'm comfortable over on Windows. Scott Eldon in New Zealand wants more of the missing bits, he says. Steve, I really enjoy the chatter between you and Leo, and while security now is essential, I heard in it that you talked to Leo before the show for half an hour about sci-fi books, TV shows, and coffee. <laughs> uh, these I miss. I'm in New Zealand listening in to the pre-shows hard because uh, of the time difference. I guess it's uh, real early in the morning. Uh, when we do this show. I've missed these recently in the main show. Is there any chance that a half hour could be distributed also as a chat show or Stephen Leo's missives? Missing some good sci-fi recommendations, etc. I'm sure plowing through the second ship now because of your mention and love it. You know, we So Leo, you mentioned that one of your streaming carriers Justin.tv. That's the one. Yeah. Records everything. Yeah. So it, it records it in chunks. So you can go to a specific time and you can watch, you know, they archive it, and you can watch again as if so we were I, offering it. We don't. It's, not, it's no reason really to offer it because it's hit or miss. Sometimes it's it's got great stuff in it. A lot of times, like today, it didn't yeah, have a whole so lot much. in it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so you would go you would go to Justin TV, and for example, look at the 11 a.m. Pacific time, exactly. And there you would see about a half an hour, typically, uh, of us. Getting, you know, adjusting ourselves and, and getting ready and talking about whatever, knowing, so, frankly, that, you know, it's a little, we're, we're less formal because we're not 
right. the official podcast at that point. Well, and it's, um, you know, my, my goal, you know, and I'm not making a secret of it, is I really like having all of that stuff because I want people to watch live. I want people to kind of get conditioned to watching what we do live. And, uh, and so I'm not adverse to having some content that isn't available for download. We make the shows proper available for download. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think that my goal is that you watch everything, not just the shows, but the making of. You're watching the making of, really. So uh, if you like watching Steve adjust himself, you can, uh, you can do that. Justin.tv <laughs> slash twit slash videos. People make highlights, which is kind of cool. But you can see all, you can see past broadcasts, and you can see highlights. Um, I'll, I'll get emails all the time. People say, I, I highlighted this portion of it or that portion of it. In fact, uh, if, if that's something, you know, you would like to do, you could make a highlight, Scott, that says, um, this is the pre-show, the Secure Now pre-show, and make that be a highlight. It's easy to do. You're just basically, you know, doing the time codes. And, um, and then others could see it as well. I mean, somebody may already be doing that. So that's the uh, that's the best way to do that. We, you know, I can't make a show out of everything, uh, and I do appreciate the time difference. I understand that. You know, we're we're kind of set up to be in the afternoon in the U.S. for the most part, and early evening. So, Leo, this next question is our last one because I also have a rock underneath my right contact lens. Oh, so. I, I oh heaven heaven forfend. <laughs> well, let's quickly get Rob Altenberg. Is that the one you'd like me to do about the Bitcoin yes, taxation? Yes. He's an attorney in Pennsylvania. Now that the Treasury Department has given Bitcoin a stamp of approval, the next big question is, well, what's the IRS think? In mm. the U.S., any accession to wealth, that's the, the term of art, is considered in calculating income tax unless it falls under an exception. Wealth earned from Bitcoin mining or speculation should be taxed. The big question is how and when. The rules depend on what Bitcoins are considered. If the IRS thinks it's a foreign currency, one set of rules might prevail. If it's more like gold, commodities, or stock certificates, other rules might apply. Also, it's not just Bitcoins. These questions apply to in-game currency on MMOs, too. Why should we say money from real-world work is taxable, but money from in-game work isn't? He says, I'm a lawyer, but not a tax lawyer. By the way, so that's this- why people like Bitcoin, because it's anonymous. It's well at the moment it's off the radar, and you know like for example, purchasing on the internet used to be non-taxable. Amazon famously began taxing, and it wasn't that that it was always tax-free. It was that consumers were responsible for reporting their purchases and taxing themselves, and of course, few people were doing that. So Amazon said, okay, well, we're going to take responsibility for that. I mean, and this brings up an interesting point, I thought. You know, I got famously those 50 Bitcoin, which, depending upon when you check, are worth maybe $12,000. Well, where did that come from? I mean, is it It's taxable, I can promise you. Uh (laughs) (laughs) When in doubt. There they is want their no cut. Doubt. Now, I have held it for more than a year, so maybe that means it's a long-term capital gain. I don't think I don't... it's taxable probably until you turn it into greenbacks. Oh, I hope not, because otherwise, I, 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 Leo, I formatted my hard drive. It was the saddest event, you know. I, 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 <laughs> it's I, gone. I, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you might have made a mistake talking a lot about your wallet, but uh, <laughs> otherwise they'd have no way of knowing, right? I mean, it's, in the, it's just a number. You're a number, not a man. And, None, none. Yeah. So, 
Maybe they'll just do a hands-off, but I don't think so. I think so. Ultimately, I think we're going to see legislation. Mark my words, my friend. It's going to be legislated. That's the way this our government is going to get around dealing with this because it's, it's just such too- a you know what it's such a tiny amount at this point that I don't think there's going to be. It's, I hope not. You got years before Ed, this don't, gets on anybody's radar. Don't wreck radar. our fun. Don't wreck our fun, government. Steve, they just figured out the internet exists. It's going to be a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And you can pay them in Bitcoin. See how they take that. Wouldn't that be interesting? Pay your tax Ooh, good in Bitcoin, point. right? I made it in Bitcoin. You can have it. You can have it in Bitcoin. Here's a code. Here's my here, here's my QR code. IRS annoying person. Right. There you go. Well, so somebody's saying it when it's converted to greenbacks. But remember, if Bitcoin is considered foreign, just like a foreign currency, there there are tax rules. If you make if I, when I make Canadian dollars, I don't have to convert them to U.S. dollars before they're taxable. Oh no, my friend, and they want their share. They want their share. Now, uh, and it's not it's not really work product either, because I know, for example, from my experience with community property, having been married, that you know the 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 work product of the each person in the marriage inures to the benefit of that that communal well but entity, so does so does entity. so does money made from investments and so forth so i think that that counts but not too. inheritance inheritance you didn't work to get so that's actually sole and separate ah interesting yeah that's yours hey i want to thank mark class for sending us more or, of or it's at least less hers these are yeah. our uh, yeah, right. <laughs> These are our... Um, now I'm in trouble. <laughs> we've got uh, our new 8-bit uh, twit pens. They come in four colors. And, uh, <laughs> what? What? Mark, Mark, oh, you're not kidding. No. This Mark Class oh. makes these. He's uh, What is the name of his company? I have it here somewhere. Worldwide Pens. Three colors. Oh, and a stylus. One of them's not a color at all, but just a stylus oh, Leo, for your tablet. You have binary combination. Three colors gives you eight. Uh-huh. There you go, because I can color over, and yeah. these little twit wipes. If you come to the Twit Brick House, you'll, we don't we don't send them out. You have to come here and visit. But uh, visitors, thanks to Mark Class of Worldwide Pens, you have twit wipes. Twi- I don't I don't think I want to know about that. No, these are good. They're microfiber lens cloths. Those with the man pack. Yes, <laughs> I'll put one in a pocket right here. <laughs> Steve Gibson joins us each and every week Wednesdays, eleven a.m. Pacific, two p.m. Eastern Time, eighteen hundred UTC. I'm sorry, 1900 UTC now, thanks to the uh, time change, at uh, twit.tv. Do watch live. We love it if you watch live, and that's how you catch the before and after. But if you can't, we do make on-demand versions of the show available, of all our shows, audio and video. In this case, twit.tv slash SN. And Steve Steve has the special edition security now. It's the 16-kilobit audio for the bandwidth impaired and the beautifully handwritten transcriptions by Elaine Ferris that are so perfectly spelled and annotated. And speaking of Elaine, it is her birthday today. <gasps> Happy birthday, Happy Elaine. Birthday. And uh, the transcript, she warned me, since she's got family descending on her, maybe a day late, but they will never be a dollar short. So, not a problem. Happy birthday, Elaine. Enjoy your birthday. Happy you're probably birthday. exhausted now that you've gotten to the end of this podcast. She didn't hear her greetings till she was finished typing. <laughs> you can stop now, Elaine. You can all stop watching, ladies and gentlemen. Although this weekend, Google's next. And you know who's going to be on Triangulation this afternoon? Brewster Kale. I know you know that name. Of the Internet Archive. He uh, created a company called Waze, a database company, which he sold for some money to AOL some years ago and decided to devote his life to philanthropy. 
he created the Internet Archive to archive all of the Internet some years ago. They save terabytes every, I think, every month, maybe That's even every amazing. day. Isn't it incredible? And it's such oh, a great I'll idea. I'll tell you, it's very embarrassing, Leo. Wayback.org if you want to Steve, see, see how Steve's oh. site used to look. <laughs> oh, my God. Don't the Wayback go. Wayback Machine do is a not, nice do not feature look. of the Internet Archive. Oh. <laughs> Everything lives forever, Steve. Just oh, remember that. I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah, archive.org, not way back to it. Thank you so much, Steve Gibson. We will see you next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.